He deserves it. In Jesus' name. How's everybody doing? We're doing good this morning? I'm so excited. Uh, I might just throw my, I don't have a microphone, so you're safe, but I got a phone, so watch out. Just kidding. Um, so uh, I'm just really excited to be up here this morning. Uh, what an honor and pl- privilege it is for me to be here. Um, man, I'm so blessed and I'm so grateful uh, for my this opportunity in life to serve this group up here, the next generation. And that's what I get to talk to you about today. So I'm so excited about it. And uh, this week was a pretty significant week in the Mead household. Um, my daughter, Hannah, uh, maybe you follow her on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, this week was a big week in our household because our daughter, Hannah, learned how to crawl. It was a big deal, yeah. And, uh, you know, since I'm the one up here, I get to show you things that I want to show you. And so I'm going to show you a video really quick of her crawling. It's up here. There she is. There she is. Check that out. There it is. That's the, we're like, we're like living this out together. Isn't this amazing? That's Paul, the polar bear. He's from the North Pole. Get it? Anyways. Anyways, it's awesome. I, I just wanted to show you that. It's a, it's a big deal in our house, and uh, we're so excited. Uh, we're just so excited about being parents, and, and really, our daughter's growing up so fast. It seems like every day something new happens. Uh, every day uh, she's doing something new, and she's standing up, and she's pulling books off our shelves, and she's doing all kinds of good stuff. And, you know, my wife is already... Uh, telling me how we need to plan for uh, her first birthday. I'm thinking it's not even nine months yet, but um, apparently it's a, it's a big deal. Even though she's not going to remember her first birthday, uh, she, she, it really explained the importance of having that, 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 that first birthday, which is a big deal. So I got to get my heart behind it. But it's awesome. Um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to enjoy. I'm not trying to you know, live too far in the future. I'm just trying to enjoy uh, just the time right now with my daughter and uh, you know yesterday I was working on my lesson and you know Ayumi's trying to feed her and I, I look around me and she's just waiting for me to make eye contact with her and right when I look at her she just just has this huge smile and man I'm just I'm so just grateful I love that little girl so much and um, you know we were talking and we were thinking how before we know it this, this little girl is going to be a preteen. And, um, and uh, I don't want to even think about this one yet, but she's going to be a teen at some point. And, you know, some, what I was thinking is that some of, some, of the, some of the teens here are probably going to be the teen leaders for my daughter. And uh, I'm excited about that because uh, they get to help us work through the drama that our daughter goes through. You know, what goes around comes around, right? It's the circle of life, um, just kidding. But uh, seriously, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just grateful to be a dad and I wanna share that part with you because uh, I get to preach. I don't gotta, I get to. I get to preach on my calling in my life at this stage, in this season. And that's the next generation. It's something that God has put so deeply on my heart and, and I'm just so excited that I get to talk to you. And my hope is by the end of the service, all of you will want to be in the team ministry. I'm just, no. my jokes are falling a little flat. You guys awake? You guys awake? That's not that funny. Okay, I'm trying. 
stand up is not for me, okay? I know what my calling isn't this morning. But uh, I just want to share with you my passion of the next generation. And to begin, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture that uh, I think is a very accurate description of not only the situation that people of Israel were in thousands of years ago, but I think it is a very accurate description of the generation that we have been called to reach today. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 6. And it says, After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And I'm going to come back and make a point on that. But it says, And the Israelites served the Lord. Throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And I like that because, you know, no matter how old you are this morning, it makes me think that God is not done with you. God still wants to use you. I know none of you are 110 years old, and so God still wants to use you to this day. Can I get an amen? amen. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, God wants to use you. He believes in you. You're alive today for a reason. And it says that they buried him in the land that he had been allocated at Timnasserah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. You know, the thing that I find so interesting is that the Israelite people had basically been given a full permission slip. They've been given a permission slip from God to basically march into the land of Canaan, hashtag the promised land, and claim it as their own. He told his servant Joshua, hey, we're going to go on a field trip together. And wherever you set foot, you will be on land that I have already given you. You just need to take the step. That's all you need to do. I've already given you the land. All you need to do is walk into it. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Is that God has already given you the land. You just need to step into it. This morning, God has already given you grace. God has already given you love, but you need to walk in it this morning. Come on, somebody. He is a good God. It's already yours. If you get nothing else this morning, it's already yours. You just need to step into it. And what an incredible fulfillment of all that God had promised his people to live and experience true freedom in a land that was said to be flowing with milk and honey, which I still don't know what that would even look like, but it sounds good. I'll interpret it as a land where they would have everything that they could ever want. No longer slaves, but free people. But one thing I've learned is that sometimes a season of great blessing can become a season of great distraction. Sometimes a season of great blessing can become a season of great distraction. You know, sometimes it's when God is blessing you the most that you are in greatest danger of being the most distracted because it said back in verse six that each of them had gone to take possession of their own land. 
And they were so consumed with their land. And sometimes we get so consumed in our own spiritual journey or we get so consumed in building our own houses that we get distracted from what's most important. Sometimes a season of great blessing can become a season of great distraction. And as they buried their leader, Joshua, maybe it could be said that they buried their future with him. that maybe they had buried their future with him. I say that because what comes next in verse 10 is really the thing that just took a hold of my heart. It looked me straight in the eyes. It grabbed my attention. And it's the verse that will really serve as the launching pad for my message today. I'm going to read it in the voice version. It says, now that whole generation, what generation? The generation that had walked with Moses, the generation that had walked through the Red Sea as Moses put his staff in the ocean and the walls of water stood up. The generation that saw the walls of Jericho fall. For six days, the people walked around the walls of Jericho. For six days, they didn't know what they were doing, but for six days they did it. And on that day, it says, on that day, on the seventh day, the walls came crumbling down to the ground. But they didn't know it. That generation passed on and another generation grew up after them. A generation that did not know the Lord. One of the saddest statements in the whole Bible. A generation that did not know the Lord and had not seen the great works he had done for Israel. A whole generation of young men and women grew up and they had no idea. They had never heard or seen the things that God had done. And and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever heard somebody say that, you know, the Bible is irrelevant, that that it's outdated, that it doesn't speak to the situations that we face in our modern times, which I would say, obviously, they've never really connected with the Word of God. Because I honestly believe that there's never been a more clear picture of the current day that we live in our nation than Judges chapter 2. Because I look around me and I see a generation growing up who does not know the Lord and the great things he has done. And you're, you, you might not agree with me, but sometimes we could be so narrow-minded. I mean, all you may know is what it's like in the church, but I'm the, I walk out on high school campuses on a weekly basis. And I see a generation growing up who does not know God and the things that he's done. And the next several verses and really the entire book of Judges goes on to describe this spin cycle of sin that the Israelites found themselves because this generation did not know God or what he had done for his people. And so what would happen is that they would disobey God And after they had disobeyed God for a season, because you know, it's fun for a little while when you get to do whatever you want to do. But eventually disaster sets in. 
And when disaster and destruction comes crashing into our lives, what do we do? We cry out to God for deliverance. And God in his great mercy and in his grace responds and he delivers us. Amen. But many times we disobey him again. And it's a cycle. And we see this cycle happening over and over throughout the book of Judges. But I believe, that sounds like a Martin Luther King statement, but I believe God has called us and positioned us in this day that we live to literally stand between two generations and bring back the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen, somebody? Father, we want to come to you in prayer. Open our hearts, Holy Spirit. Open our hearts wide for this next generation, that this is not just a message for those who are further along in life, but this is a message even to this group of young people. God, you are not by any means limited by us. But God, you want to use us to continue to carry the message of Jesus into the generations to come. In Acts 2, it says this promise is for you and your children's children. Let us be agents of the promise today, God that we would carry that promise into the lives, that we wouldn't get so focused on our own lives and our own spiritual growth that we forget to invest in the lives of others. Give us a fire and a passion in our heart. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Not my words, but your words. Please speak through me today. Thank you for this amazing opportunity that we get to gather in your name this morning. It's only because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. High five three people around you really quick. Can you high five just a few people? You can say hi too. You guys are really quiet. You can say hi. Okay, so I was thinking about, I was thinking about this theme of different generations and I really wanted to share something, maybe not from my generation, but probably from the generation that came before me, something that maybe some of the more, uh, should I say, seasoned or more mature people in the crowd are familiar with. You're welcome, Robert. This object is a relic and an artifact, if you will, from when many of you were growing up. Uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a cassette tape. Yeah, this is a cassette tape. How many of you have ever seen one of these foreign objects that I speak of? Yes. Yep. Teens, teens, this is how music used to be distributed back in the day, just so you know. And I was, don't get offended, we're just having fun. And I was thinking about how when many of you were growing up, you didn't have MP3s. You didn't have digital downloads. And, you know, there was no iTunes. There was no iPods. There was no I anything at that point in your life. So what you used to do if uh, your friend had a tape that you wanted, they had that, uh, you know, the new Van Halen um, worship CD. I'm just kidding. It's not. Uh, they had the Van Halen tape that you wanted. I think they probably had tapes in the 80s, right? Yeah, something like that. Is that the 80s? I don't know. 
But what we used to do if you had a friend that had a tape that you wanted is you would get something called uh, a dual cassette recorder, right? You remember one of those? You remember those, right? Some of you. Don't raise your hand though, you'll give your age away. So you would get a, a dual cassette recorder or a boom box and you would put your tape in and then you would get yourself a blank cassette tape and put it in on the other side and you would hit play and record and you would basically dub yourself a copy of the cassette tape. Did I get that right? Okay. I've never done it personally, but I looked it up online. It was a wonderful thing. It was illegal, but it was a wonderful thing. I ain't judging, I've done it with CDs. CDs are what came after tapes, by the way. Um, but sometimes you would find that your friend had a copy of the cassette tape that you wanted to copy. And so you would actually end up making a copy of a copy. You following me? Or if you really wanted to get crazy, maybe you had friends who had a copy of a copy of a copy and you would end up making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And this would just keep going on for like five generations. You would be like five generations deep. Now, here's the problem with that. And if you're not familiar uh, with this form of technology, then you wouldn't really know or understand this, but when you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a tape, with every generation of duplication, you lose a little bit of the quality. And so when you make a copy of the original, it could be a little bit more difficult to hear, but it sounds okay. You could still make out the sound that it's making. But by the time you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, there's so much background hiss because these things are recorded in an analog format that you can barely even make out the original sound. Don't you see the same thing happening in regards to Jesus in our culture? Don't you see the same thing happening in terms of the gospel and, and some of the values, not only in our youth, but in our nation today. I mean, when this nation was founded, there were some values. My, my dad showed this flag, an appeal to heaven. When things looked insurmountable and, 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 and things couldn't be accomplished and there was no way that things were gonna happen, they, they made an appeal to heaven. And that is where our generation stems from. That is where we come from as a country. But it seems as time goes on, that, that image or that sound becomes less and less clear. When the church was started on that day of Pentecost, there was some power, wasn't there? When the church was started on that day of Pentecost, there was some glory. There were some values. But as these values get handed down from generation to generation, to generation, to generation, we can get so far from the original that we can't even make out the original sound. We can get so far from the original that we can hardly even hear God speaking to us anymore. And I was challenged by this quote uh, by Ronald Reagan, who said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. 
Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And I thought about how the truth is never more than one generation away from extinction. Maybe God's church as we know it is never more than one generation away from extinction. The thoughts, the the morals, the basic beliefs that you want your kids to live by are never more than one generation away from being lost. And when you look around our world, I wonder if you feel like I feel as a youth pastor that some of the values that should be so natural seem to be slipping into extinction. And I don't mean to be a downer this morning. But I I walk around on these canvases and I see young women offering up their bodies as a form of acceptance. Breaks my heart. But they don't know their value in Christ. And they need some guy to validate it. Maybe some guy who's been so distorted by pornography, this incredible epidemic. And so he treats her like an object instead of a human being. I'm a product of that. I've been through that. And so for the next few minutes we have together, I want to share something that is so powerful that my heart just might explode. And so front row, be on your toes. But in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, it's a very famous verse. Solomon says, where there is no vision from God, the people run wild. The people run wild. You know, I've heard so many people preach this verse in the past, and they usually work it from the standpoint of having a great plan for the future. They talk about having a great vision and plan for your ministry. They talk about having a great vision and having a great plan for your life and for your family and for the church. But this word vision is actually closer to the Hebrew word for revelation. Not a dream for the future, but a revelation from God, a word from God. And so Solomon is saying that when people reject God's revelation, they run wild and they begin to wander away from what is true and what is right. A whole generation. I mean, and not only is this a promise in Scripture, but isn't this the image that we see in Judges chapter 2? Is it not the... The the picture that we see when we read about what happened to that generation that grew up and did not know God. A whole generation of people who grew up unaware of his divine guidance. A whole generation who grew up and did not know how to hear and interpret the voice of God. And the consequence was a whole generation who knew nothing about him or the incredible things he had done. Because a generation without revelation, is headed for destruction. I was trying really hard with that one. A generation without revelation is headed for destruction. And if we don't have the awareness to learn from those who came before us, 
and we don't know where we're going and we forget who we are and our identity in Christ, the next generation will run wild and wander farther and farther and farther away from our God. Let that not be true of us today. So I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes this morning, that he would open your heart for the next generation because I believe the Holy Spirit is the key to bringing passion for Jesus to the next generation. I believe it with all my heart. You may not believe it, but I want to show you in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter, on that day of Pentecost, he quotes something from Joel. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. And because they're filled with the spirit, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. No one's left out of this one. There is a clear connection between revelation and the Holy Spirit. And it's okay if you don't believe me. Because we're going to look into a moment in David's life. One of the most famous, one of the most greatest kings Israel has ever known. A man who was said to have a heart that was after God's own heart. We're going to look into a moment when the Holy Spirit gave him a specific revelation that included the next generation. You ready? Are you with me? All right. We're going to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. We're going old school. We're going to, we're going to put that tape back in the cassette player and play that track in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. David had taken over his kingship over Saul, and they had just brought the Ark of the Lord back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Lord was basically the, the presence of, the guiding presence of God for the Israelite people. And for years it had been in a different location, but finally David brings it back to Jerusalem. And we pick up here in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when David was settled in his palace, he summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of the Lord's covenant is out there under a tent. Nathan replied to David, do whatever you have in mind, for God is with you. David is just relaxing in his palace one evening after a long week of work. And out of nowhere, something happens. David receives a revelation from God. He gets a word from God here in this moment. You see, he's sitting there when all of a sudden he comes to realize, man, how can I be enjoying something so incredible that God has given me when the ark of the Lord is sitting outside under a tent? Something's not right here. I mean, how can I have something so nice when my God is living in something so less than what I have? You see, his heart caught a, a passion and a fire for God. How can I be so consumed, God, with my life and the things I own that 
as I'm speaking, your presence is out in a tent. And I'm sitting here in luxury. And in this moment, David is so filled with inspiration that he catches a vision to build a house for the Lord. Yet what you're going to see in a moment, even though Nathan says, do whatever you have in mind for God is with you, what you're going to find out is that David's vision doesn't quite line up with God's vision. In verse 3, it says that same night God said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. You are not the one to build a house for me to live in. Ouch. God, I'm so excited I get to build a house for you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. You're not the one to build my house. In other words, God has a plan for how he wants to build his house, David, and it doesn't include you. So, hey, Nathan, can you pass along a message to David for me? Can you tell him that I appreciate his heart and his passion and his fire? I really do. But I've decided to take this project in a different direction. In other words, God is basically telling David, it's not you, it's me. The dreaded words in any relationship. It's not you, David. It's me. And he goes on to explain to David that his kingdom will go on to last forever, but he has chosen his son Solomon to be the one to build his house and see it to completion. And what's so cool is that David is just so grateful that God would choose him and his family to carry such a legacy that he doesn't even make a big deal out of whether he's the man God is going to use or not. Because he realizes it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what God wants to do in the next generation. So as time passes, things are going relatively smooth. Just a few battles here and there, a few victories, until eventually David sins against God and he causes a plague to take over Israel. Thousands of people die. And after he works that out with God, David then decides to revisit his vision. But this time he lets his son Solomon in on the plan. And he tells Solomon, he says, hey, a while back, God put a vision. He put a passion in my heart to build a temple for the Lord. But he told me that you would actually be the one to build it, Solomon, not me. And so he gives Solomon a charge and in 1 Chronicles 22, I want to show you what he says. He says, I have worked hard. This is David. I have worked hard to provide materials for building the temple of the Lord. I have worked hard to provide materials for building the temple of the Lord. And he goes on to list all the material that he's accumulated for this project. But what I love about this is that David is still burning with a passion for God for his vision. It's easy to get discouraged when you feel like you're not the one chosen to do something. But, God, but David is so on fire for what he wants to see happen 
that he has surrendered himself to the reality that he will not be able to want, be the one to do it. He, he let go of his ego and he surrendered himself to God's plan. And even though he wasn't the one to do it, this doesn't stop him from making seemingly every preparation to ensure that this vision will become a reality. Even up until his deathbed, David is working to make preparations to set up his son Solomon for success. You see, David is thinking long. And the next six chapters, he describes in great detail how the workers and the priests would be organized in order to take care of the temple. And in chapter 28, he explains to the people of Israel how his son Solomon will lead the project. And he gives them a charge in chapter 28, verse 8, he says, So now with God as our witness, and in the sight of all of Israel, the Lord's assembly, I give you this charge on this day. Be careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God, so that you may continue to possess this good land, this land of enough. And so you can leave it to your children as a permanent inheritance. God desires that you would be able to leave something behind for your children. But he says, be careful to obey all the commands of the Lord so that you may continue to possess this good land. And if you continue to possess this good land, you will have something to leave to your children as a permanent inheritance. And he tells his people to be careful to obey these commands so that the children will take hold of it one day. Don't tell them about my commands. Don't tell them, don't you dare just tell them about my commands. You need to show them through your own life what it means to follow Jesus. Show them through your own words, through your own actions, what it means to follow Jesus. Parents, show your children. Show your children. Live it out. Don't just tell them about it. I feel like so many times there's an expectation on the church or the teen ministry or the preteen ministry to, to raise your children spiritually speaking. But God says to each and one of these people, you be careful to obey. You be the ones to show them, to live it out. Don't just talk about it on Sunday and then ignore it for seven days. Live it out every day. Show them. Show them who I am. Don't let them grow up forgetting who God is and what he has done for our family. I digress. And then he charges Solomon to obey God. It's like he addresses the parents and then he addresses the children. He addresses Solomon. And this is what he says in verse 9. My son, teens, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Teens, learn to know the God. Learn to know Jesus on an intimate level. Worship and serve him with all your heart, with your whole heart and a willing mind. 
You see, this message for the next generation is not just for older people. I mean, mature people. It's for younger people. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him, young men and women. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you. You didn't choose him. He's chosen you. How awesome is that? God handpicked you to build a temple as his sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Do the work, baby. Do the work. Be strong and do the work. And for the next few verses, David gave Solomon the complete plan from start to finish for the temple. And I want to read you the very last statement that he makes in this chapter in verse 19. But before I read it, I want to show you something in Matthew really quick. Can I, can I take a side detour somewhere? I want to show you something really cool. I like this part. So in Matthew chapter 12, not that I haven't liked the whole part, but Matthew 12, verse 28 Uh, What's going on here is Jesus has just healed the demon-possessed man. And the people around are are witnessing this miracle. And they're thinking, man, this is so crazy. This is mind-blowing. Jesus just cast out a demon out of this man. But the Pharisees, the religious people, are thinking to themselves that Jesus is only casting out demons by the devil himself. And so Jesus responds in verse 28. He says, if I'm casting out demons, but if I'm casting out demons by the, what? Let me hear you say that. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. And in a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, It's the same story, but a different account. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he says, but if I drive out demons by the, by the what? If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, Matthew talks about the Holy Spirit, but Luke refers to the finger of God, which means the Holy Spirit is the the finger of God. The Holy Spirit is the finger of God. You know, when David in Psalm 8 looks up at the stars and he says, who am I? That the creator of this universe would want to know me. He put the stars with his fingers in their place. Who did that? The Holy Spirit. And not only is the Holy Spirit identified as the finger of God, but he's also the hand of God the arm of the Lord. And so I say all that because I want to take you back to to, to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 19, after he basically lays out the plan for the temple, and this is how he ends. He says, every part of this plan, David told Solomon, was given to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. Who gave David this vision? The Holy Spirit. I think it's cool. Anyways, the Holy Spirit gave David a revelation for the next generation. 
And as everything winds down in chapter 29, we see an incredible picture of David's leadership. An inspiring example as he proclaims to the assembly of people that he is even donating out of his own personal resources and treasures to supply many of the needs for building the temple because a good leader would never ask you to do something that he's not willing to do or that she's willing to do. And so he calls the people of Israel to fully devote themselves to the Lord. And it says that the leaders of the families and the offers of the tribes of Israel gave freely and wholeheartedly toward the work on the temple of the Lord. And David is so filled with joy that he prays in the presence of the whole assembly and acknowledges before God that they are just giving to God what came from God's hand. And at the end of that church service, everyone is praising God for the opportunity to build the temple. It says that David said to the whole assembly, give praise to your Lord, your God. And the entire assembly, praise the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And they bowed low and knelt before the Lord and the king. Wouldn't it be awesome if our service every week ended like that? where we just broke out in praise for our God. What an honor, what a joy it is, God, that we get to join you in your redemptive work in this world. Did I actually get to be a partner with the creator of this universe to carry this message of Jesus into the next generation? Praise God for the honor and the privilege. But what amazes me about all this is that David was never going to see the result of his revelation. I don't know about you, but I would have been so incredibly frustrated with that outcome. I would have been so discouraged. I mean, if I have a vision for something, I want to hang around and see it through to completion. I want to see the finished product. Don't you? David could have complained and said, you know what, God, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. I mean, I'm the one that had the revelation in the first place, right? So where do you get off on telling me I'm not the one to complete the temple? God, what do you mean I won't be around to see it finished? And yet David was so surrendered to God's plan that even though he wasn't going to be around to see it, he adapted to the situation and he did everything in his power to ensure that the vision would be a success. Although his role was not to be the guy. And as a result of his thinking long, he inspired the people to give generously. They knew that David wasn't going to lead them toward that vision, but they caught his passion for building the temple because of all that David was willing to sacrifice. I wonder if anybody in the room today will catch a passion for what God wants to do. I wonder if anybody will catch a passion for the next generation. I wonder. I wonder. I'm just wondering out loud. And it was because of his humility that he made sure Solomon was set up to lead and be followed by the people to complete this great work. I mean, what an incredible example David lays for us. But in a few minutes we have left, I want to share with you two things from the Word of God that I believe are imperative for you. And if I were going, if we're going to reach this next generation. You want to know? Give me a few more minutes here. I'm going to close this out here strong. 
You know, we read about this generation back in Judges chapter 2, and it's so mind-blowing, isn't it? It's so crazy. I mean, how can they go from following Joshua in one generation into the promised land, which they had been waiting for for years since it had been promised to Abraham, and then they go into the land, Joshua dies, and they forget about God. How does that even happen? You know, we read that and you think, like, how could that possibly be? After all that God had done, how could they possibly forget to carry this message on to their children? Well, look around you. It's happening here. And here's the deal. It's not a problem of awareness because the Bible doesn't say they didn't know about the Lord. Did you hear me? It doesn't say that they didn't know about the Lord. We look at all the problems in our culture and it's not that people don't know about Jesus. We got more churches now than any time in history. What we're missing is a real experience with the living God. It's not that we don't know about him. It's that we don't know him. We don't know him. And so I want to ask a question and maybe phrase it in a form of a challenge to you. And that is that they can't know him if we don't show them. We can't know, know him. They can't know him if we don't show them. Well, they don't know the Lord. In which I would ask, well, whose fault is that? They don't know who he is. Well, who's going to tell them if not you? Who's going to be the David who says, I may not see this project out to completion, but you better put your money on it, baby, that I will do everything in my power to make sure this thing lasts beyond my lifetime. I will do everything in my power, everything in my resources to make sure that this, the message of Jesus goes on in to the next generation far after I'm gone from this world. Who's going to be the person that makes sure the next generation sees Jesus? Who's going to be the John the Baptist who says, I'm here to clear the way and point the way to Jesus? Who's going to be that person? How will they know God if we don't show them? I want to I try something real quick. I have no idea if this is going to work, but I need some audience participation, okay? You're like, I don't want to participate. It's okay. Just participate, all right? Audience discussion. We're going to do something sort of like a Simon Says, okay? So I'm going to say something. I want you to do it, okay? Can we do that? Yeah. I don't think I'm better than you. I just want to, for illustration's sake, let's, let's do this, okay? So I want everybody really quick to do something with me. Everybody touch your eye. Touch your mouth. I mean, touch your nose. I got it wrong. <laughs> touch your mouth. Touch your ear. Touch your eye. Touch your nose. Touch your mouth. Touch your ear. Touch your eye. Touch your ear. Oh. How many of you touched your mouth before you touched your ear? Touched your nose before you touched your ear? So many body parts. You know why? People do what people see. And so we're like, we're telling them about Jesus, but you need to understand that people do what people see. Maybe that works. And my question out of concern for the next generation is this, how will they know our God if we don't show our God? We are called to reflect the glory of God, not only with our lips, 
but with our lives, with the way we live. How will our children know that God is a God of compassion if all they ever see you and your wife do is fight and hold a grudge against each other for three days and don't say a word? How will they know that God is a God of forgiveness if all they ever see you do is talk negatively about another person every time you see him or her? How will they know God is a God of acceptance if you don't accept anything but perfection from them, even though you have your own flaws and imperfections? How will they know our God is a provider if they never see you trust him with your resources? How will they know our God is worthy of giving their lives to if all they ever see mom and dad do is go to church once a week, but Jesus is not a daily topic of discussion in the household? And you're not praying daily. And reading with your children. How will they know if we don't show them? You know, as I look back, I'm grateful for the people in my life who showed me who Jesus is. I'm grateful for my parents. When I went off and I wandered away, my parents stayed true to God. And it's easy, I mean, being in the team ministry now, even I get discouraged when people are not doing well. And so I can only imagine as a parent what that feels like. But in that time, I mean, I saw them it was in that time that they started serving in the preteen ministry and they started investing in the next generation. And they would get together with parents. Some of the parents I even see in this room, they would get together and they would pray for the children that had wandered away. I look back and I'm grateful for my parents. I look back and I'm grateful for Willie Artechi, my mentor in the teen ministry. who mentored me and walked me through life. I'm grateful for Ernie Basuto, another one, who walked with me and taught me about God. I'm grateful and I'm forever indebted to the people in my life who have shown me the Lord and his unconditional love. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it was not for them. And the second thing I want to share with you, if we're going to reach the, genera- the next generation and I think this is powerful because we see the state of our culture and how we're losing our identity from generation to generation. And what we want to do is start preaching a bunch of do's and don'ts. We want to start preaching a bunch of rules and regulations. But you know what? Rules and regulations without revelation lead to rebellion. And so the second statement in terms of leading this next generation is they don't need, they don't just need rules to live by, they need a calling to live for. They don't just need rules, emphasis on the word just, so before you judge me, I do believe in rules and regulations and boundaries. I believe in spanking your child's butt. Just don't spare them the rod, okay? I believe in that. You may not like that, but I believe in it. I believe in rules. But you know, as I think back again through people who had an impact on my life, I remember the first person when I was 20 years old who ever helped me see that God had a calling for my life. His name is Josh Peterson. He used to lead the campus ministry here in Lighthouse, but now he leads a sister church of ours in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And 
I just remember being around Joss. I, I, I just started coming back to church, recommitted my life to God. And that same summer, I got to uh, participate in an internship program and got to have dinner in his home with his family. And I, and I, for the first time, started to dream of what it would be like to serve God for the rest of my life. And Josh invested himself into me. And I remember asking Josh, do you really believe that I can do this? He said, I believe in you. But it's not really about what I believe. Do you believe God is calling you to this? Don't do it if it's not a calling. But it was like, I just caught this vision. I'm grateful for Josh. I'm grateful for Peter Garcia, who five years ago this June, we went on a walk out at this park next to his house, and he said, how would you feel, Mike, about leading our team ministry? And I went, uh, don't really want to do that one. <laughs> I love where I'm at now, guys. But... Um, I was like, man, I've been in the team ministry. I know the struggle that goes along with that ministry. I don't know if I want to do that. And it was that seed he planted in my heart that little did I know five years later, this is the burning passion in my life. Thank you, Pete. So if we change, if we are to change this generation, we need to give them a calling to live for, not just rules to live by. Let's not just tell them to be good little boys and girls, but to be great men and women of God. Let's raise up a generation that isn't just surviving the world, but changing the world. And the things that brings me hope is that not only are we one generation away from losing the truth, but if we come together and we show a reflection of the living God and give this generation a calling to live for, I believe we are only one generation away from changing the world. Can I get an amen? Jesus believed in the next generation. And it was when he was praying and, and, and sweats of drops of blood were coming off his face and he says, God, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do because I know that you have a vision for those that come after me and I will put my life on the line for it. I mean, imagine, we wouldn't even be here this morning if it were not for Jesus. All glory to him. In Jesus' name, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Open our hearts up. Holy Spirit, I, I beg you to open our eyes for every parent in the room today. Call them back to a place where they lead their children if they're not doing so. The cost is too great, God, for us to be so consumed with our own lives that we forget about your vision, that we forget about your house. I pray that we would give our hearts, our time, everything in us, God, to share the love of Jesus with every person that we come into contact every day. It's not about the Lighthouse Church of Christ, it's about the name of Jesus Christ. There's power in the name of Jesus to break chains. And it was because of his commitment to us that he broke our chains. 
And so as we pray and we take communion this morning, let us fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith who went before us so that we could be here today. God, we love you so much. We, we, we offer this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.